Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Before we start, this episode contains references that many may find distressing. If that sounds like it might apply to you, check the show notes for more details. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Noise, the podcast from PR Week. I'm Frankie Oliver, your host and founder of climate and social change consultancy, New Society. And today I am joined by John Harrington, the editor of PR Week. Hi, Frankie. So sadly, Danny won't be here with us this week as his first love of tennis has slightly beaten us. Um, So John, what are we here to talk about today? Well, we're here to talk about the environment, Frankie, and um, environmental, (laughs) your speciality. Yeah, I'm thrilled. uh, The environment, sustainability, and more specifically, environmental campaigning. Now, there's been quite a few stories in the last couple of weeks about this. Most prominently, we saw in Cannes, there are a couple of uh, a couple of significant things that happened there. There was one of the former winners of a Can Lion, Gustav Martner, who now works with Greenpeace, handed his award back on stage, which seemed to sort of kick off a number of um, a number of activities from Greenpeace. They sent a flotilla of uh, kayaks to WPP's rented beach space, which was quite a big story. WPP's chief executive Mark Reed said Greenpeace was right to highlight the climate crisis, but he insisted that energy companies needed to be part of the solution. I'm sure you have a view on that. Frankie, we'll come to that later. Outside Cannes, we also saw climate protests at the F1 Grand Prix at Silverstone and this week at the National Gallery, where on Monday, protesters from Just a Boil glued themselves to a John Constable painting. We've also had uh, Rob Mayhew, the famous cult hero, the TikToker who works for Fleischmann Hillard. He had a recent video looking at the hypocrisy of agencies that make climate change commitments while working with oil producers. That was the most read story on PR Week last week, incidentally, the article we wrote about about that video. So there's obviously a lot of interest here. So if you don't mind, Frankie, I'd like to turn the tables a little bit and ask you a few questions, given it's your, your area of expertise. I mean, do you think that the recent spate of activity that we've seen suggests we're in a new stage of intensified climate activism? 
Yes, I would say so. I think it's more about whether that climate activism is now actually starting to cut through as a message. So I would say Extinction Rebellion formed in 2018, and we saw a lot of activity come on the back of that. I think a lot of people didn't quite know how to connect with it or really understand what it meant. But I think people are now starting to connect the dots and really starting to understand what that activism means and what the message is that's behind it. And I think especially when you're starting to talk to professional educated um, audiences like the creative communities that they are also starting to ask questions and the penny I think is really starting to drop for them about their role and the, and the legacy that they have within this industry to meet the needs of the climate crisis. Yeah I mean it's interesting because you talk about sort of the creative community in the Marcom's world but actually it's been civil disobedience that we've seen more recently that's that's grabbed the headlines. Do you think this kind of civil disobedience is going to be the norm from now on? Can we expect more of it, do you think? Yes, I, I do. I mean, there is a big school of thought, which is um, actually supporting a huge amount of funding that's coming from philanthropic organisations, that we simply won't solve the climate crisis unless we fund civil disobedience. The, the idea that power structures are going to move quick enough that institutions such as government and the private sector really are going to meet the needs of the climate crisis is increasingly under question. I think we've seen this week that the head of the Environment Agency says we are awash with corporate greenwash. Last week, the Climate Change Committee came out and said that the government is fundamentally not meeting the needs um, of the net zero strategy. You know, policy is, is just not there. So, in, in, you know, we, we've had, we have, you know, in the run up, you know, during even the pandemic, we had a rush of pledges, didn't we? We're going to go net zero. We're going to hit this by 2030, et cetera, et cetera. And after that had kind of died down, we're now in a period where the rubber is really hitting the road and big questions are being asked about whether we really are, you know, managing this transition fast enough. And in an era where it looks like we are not moving that transition fast enough, the role of civil disobedience and, and actually really the movement of civil rights around environmental campaigning is growing and I think is going to grow in its support. It's interesting, isn't it? I, I remember not that long ago, sort of climate protesters kind of had that stereotype of being the crusties and the sort of the weirdos. I mean, nowadays, things do seem to be changing a bit. I mean, how do you think the narrative is changing around climate protesters? So I think the image of climate activists as being, you know, crusties, as it were, was definitely a kind of right-wing politicised message that was kind of coming through on the back of um, the launch of things like Extinction Rebellion. And I think there was a disconnect between where that activist movement was and its ability to connect with the public. And I think that is definitely changing. I think films like Don't Look Up have definitely helped because they've made people really kind of stand back and question exactly what is going on in society and what's happening around these structures that are preventing us from really engaging with and dealing with a solution. Not least because you've now got, you know, broadcasters and TV presenters on shows like GMB who've been very much pulled back from, you know, really having a go and criticising those activist movements and starting to really listen to exactly what it is that they were saying. So just yesterday, there was a conversation on GMB about the importance of climate activism and the fact that actually, you know, women wouldn't have had the vote, that we wouldn't have achieved many things in the world if we hadn't actually had civil rights movements and civil disobedience in this way. What I think is interesting about what's changing around the narrative, when Extinction Rebellion launched, actually, some of their narrative went quite over people's heads. They didn't really understand some of their demands around wanting citizens' assemblies and so forth and bringing the public together to have that conversation. What's happening now 
with things like Just Stop Oil, which believe it or not, they only started in February of this year and they're creating the kind of impact they've got already. The narrative has shifted from something that might happen to something that is happening. Right now, we're seeing heat waves all around the world, India, Spain, huge parts of America, you know, we've even got some of the best weather they expected next week. They're actually able to name what is happening now. And I think that's definitely shifting the narrative. They are also linking, rightly so, the need to decarbonize to also the need to reduce the cost of living crisis. And they are starting to use visual storytelling, which is obviously where we've seen things like, you know, even the front page of The Guardian today with um, the sort of recreation of the John Constable picture that we've seen at the National Portrait Gallery. That's fantastic visual storytelling that reached a front page in the way that even the Climate Change Committee couldn't achieve any front page when they announced the results of where the, the government were achieving or not achieving the net zero strategy. So visual storytelling and the ability to connect, connect with people on an emotional level, pictures, you know, communicate a thousand words is where this movement is starting to move. They are also starting to use things like cultural intervention. So obviously going into the National Portrait Gallery, using iconic pictures that we can understand and relate to and reframing them in a different way so that people can start to understand climate change is a really important part of this new strategy that I think is quite exciting. Great. Good pun around reframing, by the way. Yes, thanks. You make a really good point about how they are managing to incorporate some issues around what's happening now, that the fact that these are crises happening now, and also linking it to things like the cost of living crisis. I mean, how do you think climate activists will need to keep this issue front of mind while there are so many other really prevalent issues, as well as the cost of living crisis? Obviously, there's the, the war in Ukraine and various other political crises that are undoubtedly going to be happening over the coming months. How do they keep this issue front and centre? They have to keep campaigning. I mean, that that is their strategy. The, the, the concern is that the media and their ability to report on the climate crisis really waxes and wanes. You know, we obviously saw a massive, you know, media coverage and also, you know, impact in terms of mainstream entertainment around COP. That then kind of fell off the cliff. And climate news really struggles to sort of make the mainstream agenda still these days. And actually, climate activism is finding a way to make sure that this story stays front and centre in people's minds. So I think there's also a really big learning for the Climate Change Committee in terms of its communications and how it uses visual storytelling to tell some of these really important messages, especially how we link the climate crisis to the cost of living crisis. So one of the most important messages I think that Lord Debden came out with last week was the fact that household bills would be £125 lower today if we'd you know, committed and delivered on our previous green um, energy plans. And that is an incredibly important message for the public to hear. But because it wasn't visualised and, you know, represented in some way within society people didn't get the message i mean you kind of think should it be on the back of you know on a battle bus in the same way that that famous number for the nhs was for brexit yeah that's a really good point it's a really good point moving on slightly to talk about the role of our industry in this and, and pr agencies I, I quoted mark reed earlier on um wpp chief executive talking about the agency's marketing communications industry being part of the solution the idea that these companies aren't just going to disappear that it's better that progressive agencies work with these companies to help them with their goals around reducing their own uh, climate impact. What do you make of this? What do you make of the part of the solution argument? 
Well, the problem that we've got, John, is that fossil fuel companies are currently not part of the solution. They are not meeting the uh, recommendations of both the IEA, which is the Independent Energy Association, which is funded by the fossil fuel companies, which came out last year and said, if we are to meet net zero, we must not invest in any new fossil fuel expansion. And unfortunately, that fossil fuel expansion is being um, invested in by fossil fuel companies, by banks, and also by government. So there is a very big question in the uh, in the climate movement ar- around whether they are really part of the solution because they're not even meeting the recommendations of their own independent, you know, authority. This is also supported by the United Nations and many, many other energy experts. So if they consider themselves to be part of the solution, then they need to step up and explain exactly how they are part of the solution and have a meaningful and public debate about it. Because right now, it feels like they're pulling the wool over people's eyes. Do you think part of the problem is the fact they're not really talking about what they're doing? That it's almost, you know, these would be huge clients worth a huge amount of money. But they're just sort of done on the on the on the sly slightly. I mean, I'm I'm probably exaggerating slightly, but we don't get a lot of campaign releases about you know work being done for Shell or BP or or Exxon or, no, or anyone else. John, you're absolutely right. And the, 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 what sits at the heart of this is that we don't have any public engagement strategies. You know, the government through you know the last three cops is supposed to have delivered a public engagement strategy where we as citizens would be invited into a public consultation and conversation to understand what is the strategy to go to net zero, what do we think is progressive policy, and what do we support as the public, and what do we want as the public. It is actually our human right to be invited into that conversation. It is simply not happening. So the idea that fossil fuel companies are stepping up and we really do understand how they're accepting accelerating to net zero, it's simply not happening. And it feels like we're being fobbed off with this story of being part of the solution. Yes, there's lots of arguments about the fact, you know, how quickly can I divest from fossil fuels because not enough investment has been made in renewable energy. These are adult to adult conversations that these sorts of institutions, the government and the public should be having together in an open, transparent and honest way. And then we can have a meaningful dialogue about how far we are actually meeting the needs of this crisis, a crisis which frankly, looks like it's on a runaway train right now. Right. Well, it's worrying. I mean, do you think, um, just probably my last point on this, but the um, at the moment, there's obviously concern about uh, the supply of oil and the, you know, the, uh, the situation with Russia, a, a real great concern about what might happen in terms of the global political situation. Do you think in a way this is a bit of a barrier alongside obviously the cost of living crisis and so on, that if people think, oh, there's going to be uh, something happening that might restrict the amount of oil that we're able to get in countries like the UK, that this is this is a real communications challenge in itself. So I think it's something like 4% of our oil, I think, was coming from Russia. So it, not a huge amount, really, compared to some of the other countries like Germany. Absolutely, I believe that the war has played into the hands of some political lobbying companies. There is a huge amount of reports about the amount of money that's going into funding the we must delay message um, because of the war. 
the reality is that, you know, investing, you know, if the UK is going to even talk about opening a new coal mine, 80% of that coal is actually going to go abroad. It's not actually even funding our, our own energy strategy. And the same is going for, you know, investment in new uh, North Sea oil. So, you know, the, there's a real, it's such a complicated market that actually what we invest in locally doesn't necessarily mean that meets our own energy demand locally. So, you know, there are big questions around the sorts of decisions that are being made on the back of the war and whether it's really just being used as a bit of an excuse. Right. Interesting. Another question, obviously, I mentioned early on Rob Mayhew's really entertaining video, really sort of impactful video. I, I recommend everyone having a look at that on uh, what he would describe as the hypocrisy of agencies when it comes to climate commitments. Um, we've also had other comedians, uh, people who use humour very effectively, like Joe Lysett's programme on Shell last year. How important do you think humour and satire are when it comes to um, communicating the climate crisis? Well, I think it's incredibly effective, especially when it comes from what effectively is a trusted messenger. You know, if you look at somebody like Rob Mayhew, he's not somebody that's come out of nowhere. He's built up an absolutely massive following over the last year with his obviously amazing videos about the sort of slight ridiculousness of our industry. And what he is able to demonstrate is the ability of comedy to ask some of the really difficult questions and to reflect back you know, the hypocrisy potentially of some of the stuff that might be going on. You know, there's potentially lots of people working inside agencies who are working with fossil fuel companies who feel uncomfortable, but they feel unable to have a voice. And actually, when they see people like Rob Mayhew doing what he's doing, it gives a voice to those people. And it also educates them. There's so few people that really understand that it was actually BP that created the carbon footprint so that it would push the narrative and the dialogue and onto the individual rather than actually empowering people to look at the system around why they may even have a carbon footprint in the first place. So it's got a really critical role. And I think, you know, interesting to see what comes from Rob moving forward. I think it's also really interesting to to look at satire in terms of what Greenpeace did at Cannes, you know, the message, the poster that it held up, you know, on the crane as people kind of going into the conference centre was, this is fine. You know, it didn't say stop fossil fuels. It didn't say, you know, we must solve the climate crisis. It spoke to educated people that went, this is fine, because they're able to then reflect on the fact that it wasn't fine. So actually, I thought that Greenpeace message was really clever. It was clever, that wasn't it? Tapping into meme culture as well. Yes. I think is, you know, can be a very effective way of doing things. Another sort of side point to this, we had a, um, a campaign, our sister magazine wrote a piece about the um, the Greenpeace protests at Cannes and they quoted John Brown from Don't Cry Wolf talking about the downside to having fossil fuel clients when it comes to your staff, that some staff don't feel comfortable working on fossil fuel clients. And obviously there are certain clients that it can be sensitive, whether they're, you know, alcohol companies, betting companies, tobacco companies, whatever they may. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Might be. But John made that point that this is actually a real problem for the big PR agencies and uh, advertising agencies that work with these clients. What do you make of that? Do you think that's a, a real big problem for these sorts of agencies? A hundred percent. And it is the theory of change that's driving clean creatives and also people like purpose disruptors. So if you look at the theory of change around clean creatives that Solitaire Townsend talked about from Futera in the Sunday Times, it absolutely is about how you address the talent and the people inside those organizations that will drive the change and the ability for those people to walk away and, and stop the kind of marketing and, and, and misinformation that we're seeing coming from, from those sorts of companies. So it is the strategy and it's absolutely right. And I think what we've seen at Cannes and what we'll see moving forward is actually big questions being asked by talent and actually maybe even saying to recruiters, sorry, I don't want to work for them because they're working for fossil fuel companies. So I think that's actually where that change is going to come. Okay. So seeing all of this happening in society, what does it mean for marketing and corporate relations? Such an interesting question, John, because I think we've been through a number of years of, of really sort of positivity. You know, we believe that we can address the climate crisis. We're pledging to go net zero. This is our strategy. This is what we're going to do on the back of COP. And I think there's a really important questions to be asked, especially as employee activism is, is absolutely going to be on the, on the rise inside organizations about the role of corporate organizations addressing where we are falling behind those commitments within society. The role of the CEO as truth teller, you know, how are they actually going to stand there and talk to their employees, especially when you've got big global international organizations where over half of their employees sit in the global south who are experiencing some of these immediate weather impacts. How are they, what is the narrative they're actually going to talk to their employees about and how is that going to be truthful and authentic as this climate crisis really worsens? And then alongside that, I think it's what I think potentially limits that is that the ESG investor frame right now is very dehumanized. It talks from the corporate voice. It talks about performance narratives. It talks very much from an economics point of view. What corporates are really failing to do at the moment is to really look at the material impact of the climate crisis on their people, think about that authentic narrative, and also then think about how they're talking to their people about their role in even stepping up and addressing some of the government shortfallings in our ability to deliver this strategy. A business can only decarbonize at the speed that a government's changing a system that it enables it to be able to do so. So there's an important question for business really here about how politicized it's going to become and whether any of those businesses are really going to start to follow the role modeling of people like Patagonia, which is the brand that people really kind of hold up as, as the one that really funds even grassroots movements, who's really out there asking the key questions about how we're actually going to address this crisis. Thank you so much for that, Frankie. It's really incredibly important stuff and really great insights. I really feel we've only just scratched the surface. Yes, of, we we have only scratched <laughs> the surface. Topic. Yeah, um, and undoubtedly we'll come back to it uh, many times. That would be great. But, thank uh, you, John. No problem, and thank you. But for now, I think we should move on to top and flop. Starting with flop, there are a few options here. Could have gone with the culture secretary Nadine Dorries from taking rugby league and rugby union. 
which is an understandable thing to do because I don't honestly know the difference. But <laughs> what it, is the difference? I don't know. Oh, well, let me go. I don't know, but I'm not the culture secretary. And I'm going to put this out there. I don't think I ever will be. But the point is, she was she got them confused during a speech at the launch of a report into the social impact of the upcoming Rugby League World Cup. So fair enough, right? Fair you enough. should know. She should know. Yeah. There have been a few other things. Travel companies continuing to not exactly club themselves in glory, given the continued chaos. I think we've spoken enough about them, but I'm actually going for an individual this time, um, Bernie Eccleston. Um, a truly dreadful human being, it has to be said, in my opinion. In an interview with Good Morning Britain, the former F1 boss said he'd, quote, take a bullet for Vladimir Putin. Um, he called Putin a first-class person who has made, quotes, mistakes. He also said Ukraine's President Zelensky should have done more to avert the war. So um, thank you, Bernie Eccleston. I think we've had quite enough of your nonsense. Unsurprisingly, the comments were slated by, among others, Sir Lewis Hamilton. Um, Formula One itself also distanced itself from the comments. Um, Eccleston hasn't been the boss of Formula One for several years. It's, it's worth saying. I mean, the sport has been caught up in a racism scandal recently. It should be said over retired driver Nelson Piquet, who used the N-word when talking about Hamilton. I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable, this stuff. PK claims it was a mistranslation. I should point that out. Hamilton later said, why are we giving older voices a platform? Um, well, I think that's not the best way to phrase it. I think we know what he means. I think there's an argument to extend flop to the sport as a whole. But I think in terms of um, Eccleston and also PK, I mean, it's a really, um, really shameful, um, shameful couple of episodes. So the top, we're going for a creative campaign, unusually. Um, this is one that I've picked for our five campaigns we like this month feature. Um, have a vote for that um, on prweek.com. I've picked five campaigns. This is just one of them. See which one you like the best and vote away. But the campaign is the last photo for Calm, Campaign Against Living Miserably by Adam and Eve, DDB. The campaign launched as an unbranded exhibition at the South Bank. It's a series of portraits of people smiling. Two days later, it was revealed that the images were in fact the last pictures of the people before they took their own lives. There's a really moving film to go alongside this as well, actually. Um, the message is simple. People with mental ill health don't necessarily look like they have mental ill health. Now, I don't know about you, Frankie, but this feels like one of those campaigns that sort of stops you in your tracks, really. It had such an immediate emotional reaction to me and undoubtedly for lots of other people. I think it's a brilliant example of what you were talking about earlier on, visual storytelling. This is fantastic visual storytelling for a really dark and really serious topic. I think also, John, I think what was brilliant about it was that it got, you know, it's right to the heart psychologically. I mean, I, you know, I have experienced um, somebody dying from suicide, um, you know, quite young in my early life. And I think what can so often happen is that people question, don't they? They say, well, what mental state were they in beforehand? You know, where were they just beforehand? What could I have done? And I think that final moment of seeing what they were like just before that moment, you know, we even see in the media, they shared the last tweet, don't they, for example? Yeah. It cut right to that emotion, which everybody leaps to when they lose somebody so tragically in this way, is what could they have done and, and, and how were they just beforehand, you know? And I think that's what that campaign did so brilliantly. And also those pictures, they were huge, weren't they? They were they were life-size pictures and you could just stand there and walk through that gallery. So the the emotive experience of that must have been so powerful. Yeah, I think so. They looked like very normal photos as well. It wasn't like they were 
professional well, there were lots of kind smiling of, faces I seem to remember yeah there? they're the sort of things you see on Facebook all the time I also think it's worth pointing out the twist elements um, where initially you didn't know what, what they were and then it was revealed I think that's a very powerful campaigning device I know we've had a few other campaigns thinking about some of the PR Week award winners and some of the can winners that have done that I think um, as a more general point that's a very sort of can be a very impactful and memorable way of um, of executing a campaign but in terms of this this particular campaign, I think it really was something quite special. So well done, everyone involved in that. I should say that if you need any help or information around issues relating to what we're talking about, I'm just going to give out the calm number. It seems like a good good moment. Um, that's 0800 58 58 58. The number again, 0800 58 58 58. Okay, so moving on to a different topic. We've reached the halfway point of the year, amazingly. And I thought for a column in PR Week, I would have a look at who I think are the best UK communicators of the year so far. I'm excluding journalists, broadcasters, professional comms people, because that would be cheating. I wrote an article about it on the website. So I just thought I'd discuss some of the people Great. I chose and see, see what you think, Frankie. See if you, you agree with my choice. I'm going to go from seven to one. Uh, number seven, we've got Stephen Fitzpatrick, who's the chief executive of Ovo Energy. This might sound crazy, given the amount of uh, bad publicity that energy companies generally have been having. But I've given him this status because of the, his apology for some terrible bit of marketing that happened at the start of the year. Really I don't know if you great, remember was this. It? <laughs> it wasn't great. Um, encouraging customers to eat porridge and hug pets and things to keep their bills down. In an interview with BBC Breakfast, Fitzpatrick said the message was deeply unhelpful and upsetting. He said it was a bad day, we made a mistake, we've tried to put it right as far as as fast as possible. It was really quite an empathetic response and it didn't seem to be like a lot of the sort of corporate cold responses that you can often get. So although, yeah, the problem shouldn't have happened in the first place, I do think as PR Week it's worth highlighting people who apologise in the right way. I think he'll be delighted that you've said yes. what you said. Yes. Uh, and also it's one of those one of those moments as well when you go, how did that campaign, how did that press release, how did that messaging get out the door? It still continues to amaze me that organisations of that size can deliver those sorts of ill thought through messages and that common sense didn't strike at any point. But as you're saying, common sense did then strike and, and the reality of what they said kind of hit home, which is good. Yeah. So number six, I've got Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. Again, you might think this is an unusual choice. I'll give a very quick uh, bit of background. She was um, famously released from prison in Iran after six years after a high-profile campaign last year involved her husband, Richard, going on hunger strike. While some may have expected um, the British-Iranian national to have gone out of her way to show gratitude to authorities, instead she gave a very powerful repost to the UK government for not acting sooner. Quite right too. Yeah. What happened now should have happened six years ago, she said. And in the press conference, she gave a very sort of powerful, well-argued case uh, about her situation and how it definitely wasn't right. But then she also gave some insights into her personal feelings towards her family and her life left in the UK. I just think it was a really well, well-executed press conference and her communications, I think, were really strong. So... Number five, I've got um, another comedian. We're talking about comedians earlier on, David Baddiel. Obviously, comedian, author, 
um, co-author of um, Three Lines and a Shirt, but that's not relevant to this. Badil has really become the go-to media commentator um, on the topic of anti-Semitism, especially following publication of his book, Jews Don't Count, last year. And he's really sort of shown that he can speak with eloquence and sort of clarity and humour, much related to his own family's experience. And he's come to the fore this year, actually, in several interviews around the topic. And one of the ones that stands out for me is when he was um, responding to some comments from Whoopi Goldberg um, after Goldberg said the Holocaust was, quote, not about race. Uh, Goldberg later apologised, but it's worth having a look at that that clip to see how well he sort of, he picks through a lot of the tropes around anti-Semitism and he explains it in a very clear way. Number four, we have uh, Dame Sharon White, the chair of the John Lewis Partnership. It's good to have business people on this and I think White has been a really good communicator since she took on the role. Um, over the COVID period, she was very good, I think, a vo- vocal commitment to staff and the healthcare efforts during the height of the first wave. And also how she's sort of um, got quite a lot of publicity for the fact that the company's going to scrap its never knowingly undersold pledge, which doesn't really work in the age of online discounters. This year, I think she's proven to be a really good communicator around the need for government action on the cost of living crisis. The time has absolutely come for action, she said in a an appearance on the Peston Show on ITV. I, um, I really recommend having a look at these and seeing how well she sort of argues the case, um, as well as sort of doing a, a pretty good job, I think, on on the business front. So an empathetic and also effective leader, who I think, is worth worth flagging up. And also somebody that's prepared to stand up and hold government to account, which, you know, is the increasing politicisation of business and dealing with these issues is really important. So yes. a role model for other businesses to follow. Absolutely. Number three, Mick Lynch, General Secretary of the RMT. He's um, unsurprisingly quite high up in this list. Probably not a lot more to say about him, but... Um, Huge amount of commentary on LinkedIn about how well he's done. I mean, yes. his, uh, his Newsnight interview, I think I was practically clapping on the sofa. I mean, he he was brilliant. Yeah, I mean, straight talking seems unfazable. His knowledge of the sector and the issues really enables him to confidently call out nonsense spouted by others and really take on people who don't agree with him. Will it be enough to get hearts and minds? It's hard to say, but there are going to be a lot more strikes coming over the hill, I'm sure. And um, no doubt he is a really key asset in the RMT's communications battle. I think he's got more people with him than against him, right? Yeah, I think he may do. I think he may do. Number two, Sir Martin Lewis, a money-saving expert. I've been a fan of him for a long time. Always good if you want to try and save some pennies. Again, cost of living crisis, the one of the biggest issues of the day. Um, he's become a go-to uh, expert in, in this. He's been that way for a long time. But the issue has risen to the fore, obviously. I mean, he really is able to interpret the jargon and explain very clearly how the public can reduce their outgoings. I um, mean, he does this in a sort of a, a kind of an affable way. It's sort of slightly understated, but he's he's very much seen as a cool head. And for this reason, I think there's a famous clip uh, where he was really exasperated um, when he said there's uh, he's virtually out of tools to help people handle price rises. I think the fact that he's usually so cool, calm and collected made this particularly powerful. He was really distressed that he couldn't do more to help people. Yeah. yeah. So you've got a really great combination of expertise, um, Trust. a really shrewd... Um, way of uh, 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 sort of mind, but also the empathy and the sort of this, this sense of kindness. Um, and the sheer frustration that he was able to show at the situation, which is probably how everyone is feeling. Yeah. So I think he's been, I think he's been really good. So number one, 
Jack Monroe, the bootstrap cook, probably heard of um, of, of Monroe, sort of food writer, prominent anti-poverty campaigner again, really, really impressive performer on the issue of cost of living crisis. She talks about it with a great amount of authenticity because she's been there. But her popularity has really exploded this year. I mean, she's so good at focusing on things like how the published inflation rates don't reflect the reality for most people who who live without much money. The price rises on staple foods not necessarily reflected in inflation. And she can claim a victory on this point, the Office of National Statistics agreeing to take her approach into account when calculating inflation, showing that it's it's something that um, you know is more reflective of ordinary people's experiences. And she's also really unafraid to take politicians to task. Again, there's some, uh, if you look on our website at this, this article, I've, I've added some links from some really brilliant um, interviews that she's done. I really feel that she's got that fantastic combination of empathy, expertise about her topic, and the fact that it's completely authentic because she's been there and she's lived it. So yeah, um, hats off to Jack Monroe. And hopefully somebody that will become an even bigger voice for single parents who, you know, this week research in The Guardian showed that they are single parent families are suffering the most during the cost of living crisis. So she's got a job on her hands. Yeah, very good point. So, John, that brings us to the end of um, this week's podcast. I've I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Um, We hope that you've all enjoyed listening and we'll see you in a few weeks' time. Um, Well, I'll make the point, really, that we're even closer to the World Overshoot Day, which is on the 28th of July. This is the day that the world exceeds its planetary resources for the year, which is one day earlier than it was last year. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.